This episode, we talk about America's education system and what lessons we as individual families can learn from the last year. My name is Jacqueline, and I'm just an American. Where I live in Southern California, we're approaching the one-year mark of our public schools being closed to in-person learning. Friday, March 13th, 2020 was the last day that our children attended school in person. As we approach this ugly milestone, government officials are definitely feeling the pressure to reopen our public schools. Parents who are tired of seeing their children struggle with virtual learning, who are too often seeing their children deal with issues of isolation and loneliness, who are falling behind in their studies. Kids who are straight-A students who are now failing half their classes. Parents of these kids are demanding that this come to an end. But they are being met with resistance and pushback from the public teachers' unions, some of the most powerful political lobbyists in the country. These unions are demanding, contrary to CDC recommendations and scientific evidence, that they will not feel safe returning to work in person until all teachers and students are vaccinated. And the Democratic politicians who have been bought and paid for by these unions, some of their biggest donors and supporters, are hesitant to pressure them too hard to do otherwise. This moment we are in right now should be a wake-up call when it comes to the education system in America. It should be a moment of reckoning. For full disclosure, as we have this conversation, I am currently considered an employee in the public school system. I work as a substitute teacher for three different districts, and my eldest daughter, who is in third grade, attended public school for kindergarten, first, and second grades until the COVID lockdowns closed the schools. I come to this conversation not just as a parent, but also as a part of the system. And my experience as a substitute teacher was very enlightening. Two of the districts I work for are in more upper middle class areas, and one is in more of a working class and a lower economic class area. The differences I observed in these different districts has been eye-opening to me. The behind the scenes information I have learned from talking to a variety of teachers at a variety of schools was as well. I have seen firsthand some pretty amazing teachers, teachers who love their students and are passionate about wanting to educate and cultivate young minds. They truly want to help these kids succeed in life, building a foundation which is strong and promising. Teachers who are not raging progressives, who are not at all interested in indoctrination, but truly want to educate. But just because a lot of teachers in the system are really amazing, doesn't mean that we should turn a blind eye to the problems of the system, because these problems are significant and our kids and the future of our country are being hurt by them. I think it is pretty safe to say that at this point, the school system as a whole does not have the best interest of students as their top priority. They simply don't. And I say this for a few reasons. First of all, the absolute refusal of too many teachers unions and teachers to go back to work. This refusal is anti-science and is having a devastating impact on our kids. Multiple studies and significant evidence show that COVID is not spreading in schools at any significant rate. There is really no more of a threat to teachers working in person than there is for any human to go to work at or to the grocery store or to the doctor's office. How many other people have gone back to work in person or who have never stopped going to work in person throughout this entire pandemic? My husband is one of those people. He has never stopped going to work in his office in person, even when there was a significant COVID outbreak at his work. If he wanted a paycheck, which he did, he had to go to work. And while his job is important, the future of our school children wasn't hanging in the balance depending on his work attendance. Where would our nation be if grocery store workers, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, truck drivers, or sanitation workers refused to go back to work in person over the last year? 
We would be screwed. But the sad reality is that in those situations, it is the adults who would be affected. So it would never be tolerated. But when the people suffering are our children, then we can tolerate it. The level of disregard that our society has for our kids, I believe, is going to be one of the harshest ways we are judged by future generations. Virtual learning is a disaster. There is pretty much no one saying anything contrary to this. It doesn't work. Any true traditional homeschool family will tell you that the homeschool lifestyle is not public school at home. If you try to replicate the public school classroom as a homeschool, you will fail. And yet that is exactly what parents around the country have been demanded to do for going on a year now. Our kids have been placed in front of screens for multiple hours a day, multiple days a week. When I was working regularly as a sub, one of the biggest complaints that teachers had was the amount of screen time their students were allowed to have outside of school, which led to negative performances in school. So what do we do? We increase their screen time dramatically. Our kids are having vision problems and gaining weight due to the situation. They are becoming depressed, and some are even committing suicide. And it is fascinating to see this fact be brushed under the rug by the same people pushing extreme lockdowns for COVID because they say it's worth it if it saves even one life. I guess they get to decide which life is worth saving. But here is the most ironic and sad part of this entire situation. Many private schools across the country have been allowed to open in some capacity. In fact, the governor of California, who has been instrumental in keeping our public school kids out of school, has been sending his children to in-person education in a private school for months. The Berkeley Federation of Teachers Union president, Matt Meyer, has been dropping his child off at a private school while demanding that the public schools remain closed. I have yet to see a reasonable explanation for why, if the parents must pay tuition for their children's school, that school is safe against COVID. But if your child attends public school, it is not safe. Just like I have not seen a reasonable explanation as to why my standing in line at Costco or Target surrounded by hundreds of other people is safe, but attending church or school isn't. This isn't based on science. It is based on politics. The truth is that it is the underprivileged children of America who are suffering from these continuing school closures. The kids whose parents are not in the position to switch to a full homeschool situation. The kids whose parents work or work multiple jobs or who do not feel that they have the level of education to assist or homeschool their children. The parents who have arranged their lives and their careers around the idea that their children would have access to public education, only to have that swept out from under them at the whim of politicians and teachers unions who are in bed with each other in a system where the say of the parents, or apparently even child psychologists, counts for very little. If this is not a wake-up call to parents around the country, I honestly don't know what will be. But even the call for schools to simply be reopened is not enough. The way they want schools to look when they open and the way that many schools do look that are open is another example of how the public school system doesn't have our kids' best interests at heart. Demanding that children as young as four years old wear masks for three to six hours a day, demanding that they stay six feet apart from their friends, putting them at desks with plastic barriers around them. Is this really the environment we want to send our children into? These are not consequence-free decisions. When young children are subject to these restrictions, they are being conditioned. We hear all the time about the importance of the first five years informing who a child will grow up to be, but I don't think that most people fully comprehend how our childhood experiences affect our entire lives. Childhood represents the years where people are formed, where the very basis of their personalities and life trajectories are created. It is the foundation for their entire lives, including how they relate to other people, and really, most importantly, how they relate to other people. Are we really going to pretend that sending our kids into an environment where they cannot see the faces of their teachers and friends doesn't matter? 
Are we really going to pretend that instilling a fear in them of getting physically close to another human being isn't going to potentially affect them in their forming of relationships? I know a lot of people are going to hear this and accuse me of being exaggerated. Kids are rocks, they say. I hear that all the time. They're amazing at adapting to situations. This is true, but to pretend that adaptation means no consequences is foolish. Kids have adapted to abuse and neglect, but those adaptations don't mean there are not lifelong ramifications for what they experience in childhood. These are excuses made by adults who know they are not doing what is in the best interest of their kids, and they are trying to justify it. Because at the end of the day, adults can fight back against wrong things done to us, but kids can't. They are at our mercy, and it is up to the adults, and specifically the parents, to fight for the well-being of our kids. I have personally seen young children, um, at times when I've taken my kids to the park, I have seen young children donning their masks and gloves, backing away from my kids with wide eyes as my kids approach them to ask them to play. Sorry, but I am not going to deny the harmful ramifications I have seen with my own eyes because some teacher's union rep tells me I'm wrong. This is a trend our society really needs to wake up to. This idea that we need to believe what the powers that be tell us over our own lying eyes. We have had a year of half the population keeping their kids extremely isolated, away from other children particularly, over their fear of COVID. We have had thousands of school children falling through the cracks in the educational system because of school closures. Our kids will be dealing with the ramifications of this for their entire lives. And when you couple that with the absolute blowout in spending our government is doing to keep people satisfied while businesses are closed, adding to our national debt that our kids will have to pay someday, I am downright ashamed of the situation we are handing our kids for their futures. They will probably absolutely hate us and be perfectly justified in feeling that way. But as dark as the situation is, and I really think it is, if we choose to take the right lessons from it and view it as a wake-up call, something good might come from it. It is time our culture moved past the one-size-fits-all system of education. It is time we really take a good hard look at what providing an education for our children looks like, reminding ourselves of the reasons and the goals behind it. We have, I believe, over the last few generations, fallen into a serious trap over education. The mindset that it is just what is done, and so that is what we do. We send our kids to K-12 through schools, where they are in a classroom for six hours a day, five days a week, with other kids their age, with a teacher at the front who teaches them lessons. They have rites of passage in the school system, things like prom and high school football games and graduations. And if they want to make anything worthy out of themselves... They go on to college to earn an advanced degree. Anything less than this is shortchanging our kids in some way. But these are lies. They are norms that have been established for some good reasons and for some not so good reasons. The truth is that for some kids in America, the public school system is their only chance. Kids who come from abusive or neglectful homes. Kids whose parents can't be bothered with worrying about their education. Kids who are in the foster system or some other dire situation. For these kids, the public school system is a lifeline, an opportunity for them to have a chance to pull themselves up and do something better. But for kids who aren't in those dire situations, for kids whose parents have the ability to make a different choice, I think we need to be more open-minded as to what a quality education can look like and the pitfalls and downsides to the public school system. It is actually a very odd thing that kids are grouped together based on the sole factor of age. Age is a number, and different people at different ages can vary greatly in their levels of maturity and ability. I've subbed in kindergarten classrooms where one kid is reading proficiently at a second grade level, while another still can't get his letter sound straight. And this actually isn't a sign of overall intelligence. Kids just learn things and progress at different rates. One of my nieces started walking when she was nine months old. My younger daughter didn't take her first independent steps until she was 14 months. Now that they are aged six and five, 
They both walk equally well. No one would be able to look at them and guess who walked much younger. The same is true for learning. Some kids really struggle in school and some excel, and they can both grow up to be intelligent, literate, successful adults. Kids really should be grouped into classes or groups based on their level of ability, moving up only when they have mastered a particular skill. But we don't do it that way. We can't do it that way, according to educators, because of student self-esteem. If their peers move up and they don't, it will make them feel bad about themselves. We have taken this to the extreme end, where now, the way things are today, it takes basically the end of the world for a student to not move up to the next grade level. It doesn't matter if they are proficient or not, whether or not they complete the work, or what their grades are. Good or bad, pass or fail, you move on. This is so problematic. We keep lowering the standards needed to achieve a high school diploma, and then we lament that people can't get a job without a college degree. High school diplomas are all but worthless at this point because it isn't really an indicator of any accomplishment at all. It simply shows that you were enrolled in school until 12th grade. But also, it prevents us from actually making sure our students are learning. A student who is simply pushed up through the grades without demonstrating proficiency isn't actually learning anything. Have we forgotten what the goal of education is supposed to be? The goal isn't and shouldn't be how many kids we can give diplomas to. I mean, we could hand a diploma to every American the minute they turn 18 and say we have a 100% graduation rate and then pat ourselves on the back for a job well done. But the goal of education should be education. It should be making sure our students understand the things that they are learning. It should be to instill in them a love of learning, one that never fades away as they enter into adulthood. I'm 36 years old and I still have a love of learning. I am constantly reading books and listening to podcasts that give me new information about the world, a new understanding of people and science and history and philosophy and theology. And it saddens me to see how many Americans never read books. People who say, oh, I don't read, as though it is nothing more than a particular hobby like gardening or fishing. Reading is so much more than that. Reading a variety of books and genres helps us to constantly improve ourselves and our understanding of the world. It helps us to constantly mature. But too many Americans graduate college and at 24 years old decide that they have learned all they need and they are 100% geniuses, knowing and understanding all the things. We can see this in the quality of our public debates and conversations, with relatively young people not willing to listen to any idea that challenges their completely set, unchangeable worldview. We have made self-esteem more important than knowledge, and what we have created is a generation full of extremely arrogant and ignorant people, which is a dangerous combination. Our current school system is not creating individuals with a love of learning, with a recognition that there are always new things to learn and a desire to learn them. If anything, what the school system is teaching students is how to get by while putting in the least amount of effort and then graduating and thinking they know it all. Another real disadvantage of the public education system lies in the fact that it doesn't take into account the fact that students learn in profoundly different ways. Think right now about 20 people that you know in your life your spouse, kids, family members, friends, coworkers, neighbors. Think of 20 people. Are all those people alike in their interests, abilities, talents, and skills? Of course not. And yet we treat our children as though they are, as though they are blank slates that we can group into a classroom together and mold however we wish. But this isn't the case. Kids all learn differently and have different interests and abilities, just like adults. But the school system doesn't treat them that way. And honestly, it is no one's fault. It's just the nature of the beast. It's impossible for one teacher to give that kind of individual attention to 20 different kids every day. And in fairness, the system does recognize this and does try. This is the whole idea behind the much maligned common core math idea. 
The teachers who defend it say that the reason for all these different and weird ways to solve a math problem are that the students learn differently. And so they present different ways of doing it so that they can choose which way works best. The result, of course, is a bunch of confused kids. They know the problem, but they are applying the wrong solution. Over the last year through homeschooling my own kids, my eyes have been opened to how insufficient and flawed the one-size-fits-all system is. My eldest daughter is a visual, hands-on learner. She's a doer. There is nothing that girl hates more than bookwork. If I only focused on her reaction to reading textbooks, writing paragraphs, and doing math problems, I would conclude that she hated school and learning. But this isn't true. She is also the kid who lights up when she has to do math problems with any type of manipulative. She is the girl who loves science experiments and reading mystery novels. At eight years old, she can use a screwdriver to assemble furniture almost completely by herself. She can make lunch by herself using the stove responsibly. And she is really talented at drawing, way better than her mama. And she is a kid who constantly has questions about how the world works, how things get started, why things are the way they are. My younger daughter is in kindergarten, and she doesn't mind the worksheets and bookwork as much as her older sister. In fact, she likes it most of the time. She is incredibly quick with numbers, able to figure out addition and subtraction problems in her head in a way that leaves me impressed. But she struggles more with phonics and learning her sight words and letter sounds. In homeschool, I have the ability to focus more on those areas and less on math. We probably spend at least twice the amount of time on ELA than we do on math because that is what she needs. It is not lost on me that she wouldn't have that luxury in a regular kindergarten class. She would have to spend the general amount of time doing whatever subject the teacher allotted, being bored waiting for her classmates to catch up with math, and possibly feeling behind and frustrated when it came to sight words. And there is no denying the benefit of one-on-one or one-on-two attention my girls get from me in their learning compared to one-on-20 or 30 students that occur in a regular classroom. And then there is my son. He is four and was three years old at the beginning of this school year. I started working with him in a preschool fashion, but told myself I wasn't going to push any schoolwork on him. Whenever he wants to go play, I let him go play, since play at this age is the best learning. But more and more, he wants to participate in the formal learning. He loves workbooks and has gone from not being able to even hold a pencil to now being able to copy letters without tracing them and even write his name on his own. He is also learning his letters and sounds because he sees me teaching his older sister. He can almost count to 100, sometimes needing help on which group of 10s comes next, and can write his numbers up to 10 alone. Because of his age and birthday, in the public school system, he would be slated to attend transitional kindergarten and then kindergarten. My concern now is that he will be too far ahead in his classes and will be bored. A boy sitting in a classroom bored is a recipe for disaster. And then, of course, there are the serious concerns about the political ideologies that are being pushed in schools. It is no secret that the school system and teachers unions are heavily progressive and liberal, as we can see by who they openly support and donate to in elections. And this ideology is working its way into the classrooms for kids as young as five. The sex ed lessons that have been approved by the state of California are extremely concerning. Talking to children as young as kindergarten about issues such as choosing one's own gender. The graphic language used to talk about sex ed to middle school kids, where in some cases reps from Planned Parenthood have been welcomed into the classrooms, to have these discussions is also disturbing. The 1619 Project, the historically inaccurate and debunked rewriting of history that says that America was actually founded in 1619 when the first slaves were brought here instead of in 1776, the project that inaccurately claimed that the main reason for our revolution was that the colonists wanted to keep their slaves, this curriculum has been approved to be taught in school. 
social justice, LGBT issues, anti-religion, and anti-American, and definitely anti-conservative rhetoric is commonplace in our schools and is getting more and more extreme. And for the liberals who are completely fine with this, I ask you, how would you feel if it were the other way around? How would you feel if conservative and religious lessons were being taught in schools? We already know you wouldn't like it, hence prayer being banned from the classrooms. Let's not be hypocrites here. Politics, religion, and these types of worldview lessons should be left up to the parents. Schools should be teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic, not politics, and particularly not only one political ideology. Even if we go into high school where we actually do have to start talking about politics, all sides should be presented. Let's not pretend half the country isn't conservative. Let's not pretend that it isn't wrong for a public system that is funded by taxpayer dollars to push ideology of one side of the political aisle. It is wrong. And then, of course, is the issue of the massive education bureaucracy. Administrators and superintendents in the public school system earn a very cushy six-figure salaries, while teachers are left begging parents for donations of glue sticks and tissues and pencils. For all the progressive talk railing against CEOs of private companies who make hefty salaries while their employees struggle, they seem perfectly comfortable with that happening in the public school system because all those in power are getting rich off the taxpayer dollars while our students are struggling along. We are constantly told that we need to provide more taxpayer dollars for education. We need more dollars for education, more dollars for education. And yet, where are all of the calls to say, you know what? Why are the superintendents making six-figure salaries when our teachers are struggling? Let's make that distributed a little bit more fairly. This is most obvious when we look at the discrepancies between the schools in the wealthier areas versus those in the less wealthy areas. As I mentioned, I have had the experience of working for multiple school districts. Here's just one example of the discrepancy I saw. In the wealthier districts, a kindergarten class of 20 to 30 kids had the school day divided into morning and afternoon kindergarten, with each session having its own teacher. Therefore, those teachers were considered team teachers. At any point in time in those classrooms, there were at least four adults in the room. Four. The teacher, the team teacher, a teacher's aide, and a parent volunteer. In this particular district, there were enough parent volunteers to have at least one and sometimes two per day. That meant that those kids were getting around a one to five ratio of attention. The small group work could be a lot more individualized and educational when each group had an adult to sit with the kids. In the more working class district, the kinder day was also divided into morning and afternoon, but there was one teacher for both groups. There was no team teacher, no teacher's aide, and no parent volunteers when I subbed for that district, ever. So it was one adult to 20 to 30 kids. The small group activities consisted of less educational work and more just playtime or busy work that the kids could do on their own. And while I do believe that free play for kids at that age is actually really important, the discrepancies between the two districts were made very clear very quickly. One-size-fits-all education has its limits and its drawbacks. One-size-fits-all education has its limits and its drawbacks. What we're talking about today is really just the tip of the iceberg. The public school system has a lot of problems and our students are struggling. But in our society, we are supposed to pretend that that isn't true. We are supposed to just go along with it because that's what you do. Alternate schooling is often put down and vilified by mainstream society. Homeschool kids have been characterized as the weird kids, the antisocial kids. But studies have actually shown that this isn't true. In fact, homeschool children are exposed to a greater variety of different aged people, making them actually tend to react better to a variety of social situations than kids who are only around their same age peers all day. Senator Ben Sass actually had a really, really good book 
that touched on this very topic. It was called The Vanishing American Adult. And even though he is a senator, and I know, you know, when people hear that, they just want to brush it off if they don't like him or don't agree with him. But this book was not political at all. And it was actually really, really insightful as to this issue. He talked about the fact that kids who are, you know, in their same age group all day long and all year long are surrounded by other children, that that is a huge influence on them, which is other children who do not have wisdom of the world around them. Back before the public school system, who were kids around all day when they were, you know, working on the family farm or just having school at home? They were around their siblings. They were around children of other ages, but they were also around their parents. They were around aunts and uncles, and they were around grandparents. They spent a lot of time with people of all different ages, many of whom were adults and many of whom could impart wisdom onto these kids. But when we put them only in the same, you know, kids in, but when we put them only with children of their same age, day after day, week after week, year after year, they have a tendency to lose out on that. And it becomes harder for parents to have to, you know, find time for their kids to really spend quality time with older people who can impart wisdom on them. Students who are homeschooled consistently show excellent results growing up to be well-balanced and successful adults in a variety of fields. Charter schools and even private schools are also vilified by progressive Americans. They say that private schools are elitist and charter schools oftentimes make some sort of profit, which is considered bad. And of course, according to progressives, anything that makes a profit is bad. These people argue that profits shouldn't be made on institutions of such societal importance, such as schools. But they ignore the fact that there are still people making a massive profit in the public school system. They are just government employees instead of private ones. They are called superintendents instead of CEOs, so that makes it all better. Charter schools are excellent alternatives to public schools. Many are tuition-free, and the beauty of charter schools is that they offer flexibility. I know someone who sends her kids to a charter school where they attend class three days a week, Tuesday through Thursday. They are off Mondays and Fridays. The reason she chose this is because her husband works on the weekends, and he would never get to see his kids if they had a regular school schedule. Charter schools also offer different types of curriculum, and parents can customize it to fit their child's particular educational needs. Another friend of mine has a daughter currently enrolled in a charter school. She was originally teaching her daughter reading comprehension herself as a homeschool program, and it wasn't going well. Her daughter hated it and fought her to do it constantly. She contacted the charter school teacher and the teacher suggested an online class for reading comprehension that would help her meet the requirements. She tried the class and she loved it and is doing much better on the subject. Isn't this what education should be all about? The kids actually learning and enjoying learning? As I mentioned, my eldest daughter absolutely hates doing work out of textbooks. Her social studies book, which is basically just all she gets out of history in third grade, her social studies work consists of reading a chapter in a textbook and then answering questions. She hates it. When I ask her about anything that we've gone over, she does not retain any of it. She does not retain any of the things that she has learned in that social studies book. But the things that I have talked to her about, historical things and events in history or books that I have read to her uh, that describe historical events, she retains that knowledge. Okay, Reading textbooks and answering questions is not a way that pretty much any eight-year-old learns. And yet that is what is happening in all of the public schools. Okay, the kids should be learning and they should be enjoying what they are learning. The truth is, these are excellent alternatives to public school and the public schools hate them because they offer competition to the public teacher school unions that they would rather not have. Even though school choice would without a doubt benefit minority and underprivileged students, the ones stuck in the zones where they are forced to attend schools with one adult in the class instead of four, Democrats constantly stand against school choice. 
Because again, the teachers unions are some of their biggest donors. But the truth is that the near monopoly on education that the public schools currently hold is not beneficial to our society or our kids. One of the greatest consequences of a free market system is competition. And the reason for that is that competition leads to a bettering in quality. When different businesses or organizations have to compete for the consumer, then they work hard to have the best quality product and service for the best price. This philosophy doesn't just disappear because we would like it to not apply to public sector situations. It is absolutely still true. It absolutely still does apply. The teachers unions want to eliminate that competition because without it, the teachers union has more power. Without competition, it doesn't matter if the quality of education fails because there is no other viable alternative. And if the teachers decide to take two years off of in-person education, there will be no real ramifications because again, there are no real alternatives. Except that there are real alternatives excellent ones, and the choices that can be made to benefit students as individuals, not as some homogenous group. Not all children learn by sitting in a classroom setting for six hours a day. That is just a fact. Boys in particular often have a hard time in traditional classrooms because, well, they are boys. They desire to be active and physical. Sitting still and quiet in a chair for hours at a time goes too much against their DNA. And oftentimes these kids are diagnosed or misdiagnosed with ADHD and sometimes even medicated just to get them to sit down and be quiet. Christina Hoff Summers is an author that has an excellent book on the topic called The War Against Boys. And I highly recommend it for parents of boys. She goes through how the public school system was basically built for the qualities and traits that girls have, not for boys. For some kids, reading from the textbook and answering written questions is just simply not how they learn. In fact, that is just torture for them. And if it is torture, they will not learn anything. They will not retain the information and they will not desire to seek out more. They will get through it just to get through it. And is that really what we want? Again, what is the purpose of our kids' education? Is it to just say they did it? Or do we actually want them learning and understanding and retaining something? When did it become taboo to suggest or discuss the idea that traditional public schools might not be the best option for all kids? It became that way when the powerful decided this was the tool to give them more power. The state loves the idea that they have control over what school children across the country are learning. The choice to teach social justice issues and the 1619 Project in schools demonstrate this perfectly. If they can get to these kids at a young age, they can create more voters for themselves, more people who have their ideology in the future. And there is even a part of me that wonders at this point, in light of the consistent struggling of our schools, if they are fine with that as well. People who graduate high school and can barely read will be less likely to support themselves or make a good life for themselves. Those people will be reliant on the government, which will give the government more control and more power. And for those who say, what are you talking about? It is the progressives who want to keep people in school. It is the progressives who want to have more access to school, hence their push for taxpayer-funded college for all. My response would be this. They just want more control of the indoctrination. Colleges and universities across America have become nothing more than indoctrination camps for progressive ideas. I know because I attended college. It was bad when I attended 12 years ago, and it is only worse now. You only need to see how conservative speakers such as Ben Shapiro have been treated on these campuses. They don't want them to even have the opportunity to speak. There is no room for open discussion, differing opinions, or dissent from the radical progressive views. And the system they have created when it comes to tuition and financial aid and student loans is an absolute disaster. It is corruption to a T. This is an entire conversation in and of itself, but here's the gist of it. 
The federal government gives out loans to people to attend college, meaning that anyone can attend and can major in whatever silly major the college can come up with. Majors like gender studies with very few productive real world applications. These loans increased the demand for colleges and universities. And what happens when demand increases? So does the cost. Basic economics right there. And those laws of economics do not just disappear because we would like them to. So the universities have raised tuition at insane rates. And the government keeps giving loans, so the students keep attending, and the vicious cycle continues. Then, these students graduate with all with their all-but-useless gender studies degrees, can't get jobs, and have $100,000 in student loan debt. Even if they major in something useful, like engineering or education, the starting salaries for students right out of college are still relatively low. Having a monthly student loan payment of $1,000 a month when your yearly salary is $40K a year is not the recipe for a good start. And what is the solution they propose? throw more taxpayer dollars at the problem in the form of tuition-free college. I could do an entire episode on the college mess in America, but this is just the basics of it. Families do have many options for their kids in education right now, but the non-public school options are presented as the outside-the-box choice, the weird choices, the outcast choices. My daughter came to me the other day and she actually asked me, she said, Mom, why is it that when I watch TV shows or when I see anything, everybody goes to school? And I said, what do you mean everybody goes to school? And she said, everybody goes to school. They all go to school, but I don't go to school. And the thing is, is that she likes being homeschooled. She likes what we do every single day and the flexibility that it offers and the the different things that we're able to explore and experience. But she turns on the TV and the norm is presented. Everybody goes to school. And so that is what sticks in her head. This is what needs to change. And this is what I hope our current situation will actually lead to changing. We need to stop having public school as the default option and telling parents that making another choice is going against the grain. We need to stop blindly sending our kids into the public school system just because that is what you do. That's the status quo. The direction of education we choose for our kids should be the consequence of a lot of thought and reflection and consideration of what works for your family and for your individual child. I am not in any way suggesting we should eliminate the public school system. It is too ingrained in our society at this point to be completely eliminated. Too many people are reliant on it, and as I said, for some kids, it really is their only chance. But not just that, truly some kids thrive in public school. They love it, and they learn that way, and they do well, and that's great. But many kids struggle in the public school system, and many kids who just get by in public school could really thrive in alternate education. Coming to a point in our society where choice in education becomes more mainstream can only help everyone. Creating competition against public schools will improve the quality and performance of public schools. Offering families different viable choices will bring the focus back on actual education, not just going along to get by. And all of this can remind us as a culture what the main goal of education should be. Opening students' minds to have a desire to learn, retain useful and important information, and have the tools to become successful adults who can create a good life for themselves, supporting themselves and their families, and becoming contributing members of society. As ugly as things are right now, I choose to remain optimistic. It is often through the challenges and failures that our eyes are opened and we recognize that there are better paths to follow. I just saw a news article the other day that was talking about the tremendous increase in homeschooling that people are seeing, that state different states across the country are seeing. Charter school enrollment is up double or triple from what it was before COVID. And I hope that that continues. I hope that we continue to see that. I'm hoping this is what we start to see in our nation's approach to our kids' education. All right, so we are going to go to our three questions of the week.
question number one comes from Daniela. With education and schooling being such a large part of the political discourse over the last few months, I was wondering if you were planning on advising your kids to go to college with how political college campuses have become. So that's actually a really good question. And I think that, again, I could probably do an entire you know episode on just the, the, the discussion of college. But basically, for a while now, what my husband and I have talked about when it comes to how we are going to approach advising our children on college um, for a variety of reasons. Part of it is the political side of it. Part of it is the economic side of it and how reasonable it now is when, you know, college education is looking to cost people upwards of 50, 60, 70, $100,000 uh, for a bachelor's degree. Um, so the approach that my husband and I have kind of talked about taking with our kids is once they get to a point where they are, you know, 18 and graduating from high school, the conversation that we're going to have with them is what do you want to do with your life? Because I think that this default setting that we have, again, it always comes back to this default setting, this default setting that says that everybody just at the minute they graduate high school, they just have to enroll in college or a university. I think it's really flawed. I think that there are a lot of paths to success and happiness in life and to, you know, becoming those contributing members of society, people who can support themselves and be fulfilled and have successful careers. I think there's a lot of paths that you can go down to achieve that. And college is just one of those paths. And I also think that there are a lot of kids at 18 years old who um, just really are not sure of the path that they want to take in their life. And so they just kind of think that they know, or a lot of them will go into college undeclared with an undeclared major, and then they, you know, try to figure it out. But my question and what I'm going to really focus on when it comes to my kids is the fact that, you know, what is it that you want to do? Now, if my one of my children graduates high school and says, you know, I know for a fact that I want to be a veterinarian or I know I want to be a nurse or I know I want to be um, an engineer, then, okay, what is it going to take for you to achieve that? And if going to college is a part of that, then you're going to go to college because that's just the way that it is. However, there are other options. If If my son, for instance, comes to me and says that he wants to be a truck driver, then I'm going to support him in that. And I'm going to say, okay, go get your license, go figure out what you need to do. And if he can get a job and start a career where he's not going to start his life off with $60,000 in student loan debt, then that's great. I mean, that's, that's, that's the better option, I think. I mean, obviously, if you need to take out a loan, but you're going to get a good paying job that's going to be able to, you know, help you to pay that back, then that's what you do. But it's not the only option. I mean, if one of my kids comes to me and says they want to go to cosmetology school, I'm going to support that. If they want to go learn how to be a welder and go to a trade school, I'm going to support that. But on the other side of it, if my kids come to me at 18 years old and they say, you know what, mom, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. As many 18 year olds do do feel that way. What I'm going to tell my kids is then go get a job and get a job in an industry or in a field that interests you. Something that you think might be a path that you would want to take and try different, different things out. You know, you may get into an industry and be like, I absolutely hate this. Why in the world would I want to spend my whole life in this? Okay. Then you go try something new. You may get into an industry and be like, oh my gosh, I love this, but then find a particular, you know, corridor of that industry and say, okay, this is what I want to do. And if that requires going to college to succeed, then, then you go to college. But I think that, you know, if my, if my kids need to take a year or two or even three years off of school where they're working and trying to figure out where they want their lives to be when they graduate high school, I think that that is a much better option than taking out tens of thousands of dollars for a degree that you are not going to do anything with. Because the truth is, is that I know far more people who have spent money, who have taken out loans that they regret 
far more people who have got spent tens of thousands of dollars on degrees that they do not use <laughs> to have their job. I know far more people who have done that than people who say, man, I really regret losing those two years outside of high school by not going straight to college. I don't think that anyone actually would feel that way. Um, and the other thing is, is that work experience is never going to hurt you. I think that there is this another misconception is the fact that, you know, people will graduate, go through college and they'll work their butts off in college for four years or five years or whatever, graduate, but never have worked a day in their life. And guess what? They're going to start at the very, very bottom because when you go out into the real world, actual companies that, yeah, they may look for the degree or they may require the degree, but you know what they're really looking at? Work experience. You know what they're really going to talk to you about in the interview process? Work experience. What have you actually done in this field? And if you have experience, if you have work experience, that is going to take you really, really far. So, you know, that's kind of the, the, advice that my husband and I plan on giving our kids um, to just, you know, I, I don't think that we need to just tell people every single person, like, go to college. You know, college also isn't for everybody. And I think that, I mean, I personally in my life know a lot of really intelligent, successful people who have never gone to college. And also the idea that, you know, people who have gone to college are the educated ones and, and or, or the misconception that they're the wise ones, th- that's just not true either. I think that there are a lot of people in the world who've never gone to college who have much more wisdom than a lot of people who have gone to college. All right, question number two comes from Edward. How can parents prepare their children for college to listen to different ideas and think critically on their own without being influenced by a professor's ideology? Okay, so how can they prepare for their children for college um, to be able to think on their own and not be influenced? So it takes a lot of work. I mean, that's just the truth. It takes a lot of work. And it is one of those things that I actually, you know, I think is missing from the public school system is the ability, you know, to teach these kids and to teach students as they're growing up to think differently, to, you know, how to respond to different and mostly how to respond to people who disagree with you. So one of the things that I have always questioned, you know, and and kind of paid attention to are people who were raised in religious households who then walk away from their faith. That's something that interests me because I am a very strong Christian and I definitely want my children to, you know, follow in that path because I do think that that is the recipe for a happiest, the happiest life. But I want them to follow in that path. But one of the, the overall trends that I have seen in people who walk away from their faith is that, um, well, it's twofold. One is that their parents, you know, demonstrate that they really don't believe in the stuff that they're saying. They're just teaching their kids for the sake of teaching their kids. But the second reason is that they've never experienced or been exposed to anybody who criticized their faith. The parents keep these kids, some parents, you know, they want to keep these kids in these ideological bubbles and never expose them to ideas that actually question their faith. So what happens is, is that, you know, these kids will turn 18, they'll go to college and all of a sudden they'll meet up with people who are atheists, people who are, you know, Muslim, people who are Buddhist of just whatever religion. And then they're like, oh, well, let me tell you why Christianity is a sham. And these kids have never heard those arguments before. And then they're just blown away because they don't know how to rebut them. The same is true with political ideology. This, these ideological bubbles that we now live in are very, very dangerous. And the truth is, is that I think that a lot of the vitriol and the hate and the anger that is demonstrated by a lot of people and, you know, the ad hominem attacks and the name calling and all of that stuff, that is all done because they are not able to defend their position. And I'm, I think that a lot of the people who are not able to defend their position, some of the reason they can't defend it is because it's actually indefensible. It's a crappy position. But some of the reason that they can't defend it is simply for the fact that they've never had to. Um, they've never been put in a situation where they have to defend it. So when I'm raising my children, you know, 
I mean, my daughter, going back to the religious part of it, you know, she she comes came to me the other day because one of, you know, her cousins told me that, you know, she goes, hey, you know, one of my cousins, um, she says she doesn't believe in God. And, you know, that was an opportunity for me to sit down with her and be like, you know, yeah, some people don't believe in God. And, you know, we still love them and we still pray for them. And, you know, everybody just has their different ideas. But if you want to know why mommy believes in God and why I believe in it, or if you want to know, you know, why we believe in certain things in this house and our, our ideology, I am happy to sit down with you and calmly and rationally explain the reasons why. And when you, you know, and, and I'm happy also to expose you and expose my children to different ideas. So I think that one of the things that we as parents really part of our job as parents is not to just, you know, isolate our children and put them in a bubble and say, okay, we're only, you know, when I talk about, for instance, the school is teaching politics and ideology and LGBT issues and, and social justice and the 1619 project. You know, when I, when I say that that makes me not want to put my kids back into public school, you know, those things, it's, it's not because I want to shield my children from hearing those ideas. It's because they are going to present those ideas as though they are all 100% true established fact. And I don't believe that that is the case. I believe that there is another side of the argument. And I want my children to hear that side of the argument and understand why we in this family believe what we believe before they go out into the world so that they're prepared when they hear these opposing viewpoints. And it's something that we're always learning and we're always dealing with, um, but it is really hard. And when I was in college as a conservative um, during, you know, it was rough because I was a conservative in college during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, which progressives obviously very much hated and they hated George W. Bush and my brother was a Marine and he was shipping off to Afghanistan. And so, you know, having to sit in college classrooms, listening to all of these people deride the military and deride the war efforts and deride, you know, the president and deride all of these things, you know, while my brother was literally like in the midst of it, uh, that was really difficult for me, but I was strong in my convictions and I knew what I believed and I knew why I believed it and it helped me to get through it. But um, again, going back to just kind of my answer to the first question, you know, my kids are going to look at college as a means to an end. College is a means for you to learn a skill that you need to learn so that you can go out into the world and do the job you want to do. My kids aren't going to be going to college for enlightenment. Nobody should go to college for enlightenment because you don't get enlightenment. What you get in college is indoctrination. All right. Question number three comes from Natalie. If K through 12 schooling can be a service given to the community through taxation, why can't college also be treated that way? Uh, well, it can. It can. But the question is, do we want it to? The question is, do we look at our K through 12 education and at the quality of it and at what our students are teaching and what are what our students are being taught and what our students are learning? And um, do we look at that and say, wow, that is just so fantastic and amazing and successful that we actually want to carry that into college? I, I don't. I don't think so. I think that our entire education system and the way that we approach we approach it actually needs to be revamped. I think that we need to go back to, you know, starting to learn life skills in high school, starting to, you know, let kids learn, you know, start to go in certain directions in high school. I mean, my dad grew up in Italy. And one of the things I always found really fascinating was that in Italy, they have two different kinds of high schools. They have the technical high school, uh, which is if you wanted, which is where you would go if you wanted to, you know, pursue a career in math or any sort of math or science or technical field. And then they had um, their 
I can't even remember what it's called, if it's like the literary high school or something, but it was the high school where they would go to if they wanted to pursue fields that were more like, you know, like an like English or history or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of, I guess the difference between a bachelor's of science and a bachelor's of arts in the United States of America. But they actually started that off in high school. And I always thought that that was really interesting. I think that we really need to take a look at all of the different levels of our education system and see where we can streamline it and see where we can make it better and see where we can improve it. And also go back to remembering what the goal of the education system is, which is to actually teach people and have them learn and have them, you know, be able to become successful adults. I do not believe and I do not support the idea of public funding for college. I think that all we are doing, to be completely honest, is extending all of the problems that we have with public funding for high schools and K through 12. I think that we're just extending it for another two to four years, um, all of the same problems that we have. So I don't I don't think that that is the correct thing for us to do. So that's just not the direction that I think that our country should go in. And I think one of the things that, you know, we have a tendency to focus on is like, you know, and this is a really good question, the way it's phrased to point this out, is they say, why can't college also be treated that way? Oh, it can. It can. But the question is, do we want it to? You know, it's just like, you know, why can't we have universal health care. And people will be like, oh, we just can't do that in the United States. Oh, no, we can. But the question is, is that what is it going to cost? What are we going to sacrifice? What is it going to look like? And do we actually want to move forward with it? And do we actually want to do that? And those are the questions and the conversations that we need to be having. Thank you for taking a moment out of your day to talk about education in America. I will be back next week with another deep dive into issues affecting American life from the perspective of just an American. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps each and every week. Also, please share this episode with a family member or a friend so we can help spread the word. You can follow me on Twitter at JJAnAmerican. You can also message the show by sending an email to JJ at I'mJustAnAmerican.com or visiting our Locals page at I'mJustAnAmerican.Locals.com. You can also follow the show on Instagram at I'm Just an American. This episode was produced and edited by Brian White. Music for this episode was written and performed by Michael Beatty.